This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Africa and Global Health will come to order. Thank witnesses for coming. I know it was difficult getting in the building this morning and cold outside waiting, so thank you. Somalia is often used as an example of a failed state, but the reestablishment of a federal government and subsequent elections have created hope for a changed narrative in Somalia. In his visit last week, the Somali Prime Minister described his country as being at a period of opportunity uh, where it could uh, turn the page or it could backslide. Senator Booker and I are holding this hearing to demonstrate the interest of the United States in keeping or in helping Somalia to turn that page. Uh, for Somalia, its surrounding region, U.S. interests abroad, the stakes are simply too high to let the country backslide. Terrorism remains a real threat. Al-Shabaab was named the most potent threat to U.S. interests in East Africa by an, our intelligence community last year, and ISIS also remains a factor in Somalia. The Somalia National Army uh, will eventually take over from Amisom, uh, but that force remains disorganized and faces serious readiness challenges despite receiving ongoing assistance and support from the United States. Despite these challenges, Amisom is uh, proceeding with plans to draw down its troops by 2020. Basic governance also remains the challenge for the Somalia government, uh, which cannot yet provide services to its citizens like roads and access to schools and hospitals. In short, the situation in Somalia remains tenuous and uh, has not been helped by offensive rhetoric emanating from the White House a long freeze on administration of uh, our, sorry, of admission of refugees from Somalia and prohibitions on Somali travel to the United States. The purpose of this hearing is to review the situation in Somalia and examine how U.S. policies can best support peace and stability in Somalia. With that, I'll turn it over to uh, Senator Booker for his opening statements, and I appreciate uh, um, his encouragement to hold this hearing, and um, we, uh, we're very interested in what's going on, so thank you. Yeah, I, um, I'm going to submit my uh, formal opening statement for the record. I'm really uh, looking forward to this conversation. I'm grateful for the leadership of uh, Senator Flake on, on these issues. I have a lot of very pressing concerns. Uh, you, you know, we have uh, extreme challenges right now with our diplomatic efforts uh, in, in Somalia. I was very taken by the fact that we had uh, our Secretary of State in the midst of a very important trip to the continent of Africa, having that trip undercut uh, by continuing uh, uh, disorder, chaos uh, within our uh, diplomatic corps. Uh, I'm concerned that we don't have uh, an ambassador to, to place here. I'm concerned that at a time where we have a region in instability, we don't have an overall strategy everywhere from Syria uh, to Yemen. We have proxy wars and competition going on that are deeply affecting this area. Uh, we have a state that is showing signs of progress but still ranked as one of the most corrupt states in the country. Um, there are a lot of really pressing issues, not to mention the security concerns we have. Uh, and uh, frankly, something that Senator Flake has been a leader on along with some of my colleagues about just under what authorization are we using military force? Uh, who are we targeting? Uh, and again, under what authorizations? There is so much within this topic that only, not only deals with a real crisis, a humanitarian crisis, a, a security crisis, but also with larger themes and larger issues uh, that are affecting uh, the globe as a whole and American security overall. Uh, I, I read each of your testimonies with great uh, appreciation, uh, what you prepared uh, for us uh, in a written way, but I'm really looking forward to this conversation. There's a lot going on in Washington today, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and he and I are both split between numerous committees, had to leave uh, a very uh, uh, 
pressing conversation about gun violence in our country. Um, uh, but this is so important, and America's role, as you all know, is essential, especially at a time that China's influence uh, is rising uh, uh, in that region. So let's get to the conversation. But again, I'm just so grateful to my colleague uh, and friend, Senator Flake, for um, hosting this uh, committee hearing. Thank you, Senator Booker. Uh, the subcommittee will now hear testimony from four distinguished experts on Somalia. Each brings a wealth of experience, and all have rearranged their schedules to be here today. It's much appreciated, and I appreciated meeting a few of you in my office uh, earlier this week, so or last week, so thank you for, for coming there. We'll hear today from Mr. Abdi Rashid Hashi, uh, Dr. Tricia Bacon, Mr. Mark Yarnell, and Dr. E.J. Hogendorn. Mr. Hashi is the ex Executive Director of the Heritage Institute for Policy Studies, an impressive think tank in Somalia. He has also served Somalia's government in various roles, including in the offices of the Prime Minister and the Presidency. Dr. Bacon is the Assistant Professor at American University and spent 10 years at uh, the Department of State working on counterterrorism issues. Mr. Mark Yarnell is a se Senior Advocate for Refugees International and has a background working on humanitarian relief issues. Dr. Hogendorn is the Deputy Program Director for the International Crisis Group and has previously served as an arms export, uh, expert with the United Nations Panel of Experts on Somalia. With that, we'll recognize uh, Mr. Hashi. Uh, good, morning. Uh, good morning. Thank you very much for inviting me here today. I arrived from Mogadishu, Somalia, and if the situation in Washington is a bit complicated, Mogadishu is also as complicated because I slept last night. Uh, there are ongoing efforts to unseat the Speaker of the Somali Parliament and also to actually uh, unseat the cabinet. So we have situations everywhere. Uh, sir, uh, when I talk about Somalia, uh, I always like to uh, bring to the attention of my audience that the situation of Somalia uh, needs to be taken into context. And Somalia is a country that for 25 years or more was a failed state. And even now, it's described as a fragile context. So it hovers or oscillates between fragility and failed state. And the reason Somalia is like that uh, are many, but I would like to just mention four. I have sent you a written statement that uh, outlines our views about what's going on in Somalia. Uh, but the four main reasons why we have the situation we have in Somalia is number one, is the ongoing insurgency of Al-Shabaab. Uh, last 10 years, Al-Qaeda affiliated, very determined, strong, well-resourced. Uh, insurgency is trying to infanticide the Somali institutions that are very fragile. And thus far, the efforts of the Somali government and the African Union and the international community was not able to put to an end of the Al-Shabaab problem. The second reason Somalia is the way it is, is the absence of enough effort among the Somalis and the Africans and the Arab countries and the international community to also fix this failed state. It's like, you know, asking somebody to go to, the, to Mars with gadgets they get from the dollar store. The efforts Somalia gets for the past 25 years is equal to ex expecting somebody to go to Mars with the stuff they get from the dollar store. 
it has been never enough, and I can just give you one single example. The budget of the Somali government now is, this year is $270 million. The entire Somali government is $270 million. But it needs about $3 billion to create opportunities for, for the Somali youngsters, which is about 70% of the population, to deal with, with Al-Shawab and to provide services. So sometimes, although everybody knows the limit, the limited resources this government gets or is able to generate within, still we expect this government to act like a government and to provide services to its citizens. The third problem we have Somalia is the mediocreness, unfortunately, of our politicians. Whenever we get an opportunity to move things forward, our politicians end up unnecessary political infightings, which is going on in Mogadishu today, where the MPs who just came back from recess are trying to unseat the speaker and the prime minister and everybody, and that hampers uh, the energy of the Somali people who have suffered a lot and who want to fix their country, and also it actually dampens and, and affects the, 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 the energy and the enthusiasm from the international community. Finally, the, one of the biggest problems we face in Somalia is the meddling of external actors, sometimes for geopolitical reasons. Now the Gulf crisis is actually unraveling Somalia because certain different quarters with the Somali political elite are siding one country, one country or another and that's actually refibrating the entire system and it creates regression and it creates a lot of problems. Having said that, everything is doom and gloom in Somalia. There is a lot of ongoing efforts to the extent that Somali think tank is coming to Washington to talk about Somalia and government is doing its, its best and citizens are doing their best. And also, unless those four items are dealt with, especially the Somali politicians, unless they get their acts together, all the other problems will just increase. And since I have five minutes, I think maybe I should just stop it there. And, I ha and I'm happy to answer your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hashi. I appreciate uh, summarizing, and we'll uh, address those questions. Dr. Bacon. Good morning. It's an honor to be here today to discuss the security situation in Somalia. Thank you for the opportunity. Over the past 11 years, substantial resources have been expended to counter al-Shabaab. And as my colleague has mentioned, there has been progress, there are opportunities, and there are signs of hope. However, as I'll discuss today, the current strategy will not militarily defeat al-Shabaab. And yet there is little impetus to pursue a negotiated settlement either. In this no man's land, al-Shabaab will continue to pose a regional threat, especially to Kenya and perhaps increasingly to Ethiopia as well. It will conduct terrorist attacks in Mogadishu, as well as operations against Somali and Amazon forces. It will also act as a shadow government and challenge the legitimacy of the still fragile Somali federal government, both through its violence and through presenting itself as an alternative. The military campaign against the group is multifaceted, but I'd like to focus on Amazon, the Somali National Army, and the U.S. counterterrorism efforts. Amazon has committed to a conditions-based withdrawal. It seems very aware that any gains will be lost if it withdraws prematurely and that the timetable for withdrawal is unwise. However, funding remains uncertain, and it's that uncertainty, not the capability of the Somali National Army, that has motivated the withdrawal plans. Even assuming that Amazon stays with current force levels, 
It has little appetite for the very difficult offensive that would be required to dislodge al-Shabaab from its strongholds. Even if Amazon succeeded from clearing those areas, there are not the necessary forces in place to hold that territory. And while Amazon is essential to preserving the gains made to date, opposing an external occupier is a constant theme in al-Shabaab's narrative, and this finds resonance among some Somalis. Yet the Somali National Army is woefully unprepared to accept responsibility. For the most part, it can hold its positions, though usually only in conjunction with Amazon or in agreement with local forces, but it cannot expand into al-Shabaab-held territory. In addition, the Somali National Army continues to suffer from the ill effects of clanism. Overall, it's dominated by the Hawiya clan, leading some to see it as a glorified clan militia. Within the SNA, clan divisions persist, contributing to infighting, poor command and control, and a lack of discipline. In contrast, al-Shabaab has positioned itself as a champion of marginalized clans, particularly those aggrieved by the clan-based power-sharing formula. While al-Shabaab does not transcend clanism as it claims, it has sufficient internal discipline that personnel obey commands even when there are clan differences. The Somali National Army also experiences systemic corruption. Perhaps most notably, irregular pay leads SNA soldiers to prey upon the population. It also makes the SNA susceptible to infiltration by al-Shabaab. On the other hand, al-Shabaab is comparatively less corrupt, particularly in its treatment of the Somali populace. The group takes a hard stance against internal corruption, punishing members who engage in such conduct. Finally, U.S. airstrikes are putting pressure on al-Shabaab. In 2017, the U.S. doubled its airstrikes, hitting training facilities, individuals involved in attacks, as well as other targets. However, al-Shabaab can replace personnel with limited long-term disruption. And those strikes have thwarted some attacks, al-Shabaab can still strike in Mogadishu. Overall, al-Shabaab has and will continue to incur losses from Amazon, the SNA, and U.S. counterterrorism efforts. But its setbacks are largely tactical. It's a resilient organization that is able to adapt to changes in the environment. And perhaps most importantly, the group has become embedded in Somali society, making a military victory difficult under the best of circumstances. Nonetheless, there are limited prospects for a political settlement. Negotiations face serious obstacles, not least of which is how unpalatable it is to negotiate with an Al-Qaeda-affiliated organization that engages in terrorist attacks like the one that killed 500 in Mogadishu last October. However, in focusing on the group's terrorist attacks, one can overlook that it has established a position as a credible alternative to the government, capitalizing on grievances, delivering a modicum of justice and security, and offering an alternative to the current political system. And despite experiencing some tensions, al-Shabaab is probably the most cohesive and unified entity in southern Somalia. There are a few indications that al-Shabaab seeks a political settlement. Parts of the group, particularly its leaders, are ideologically uncompromising and probably irreconcilable. But some join the group because of political marginalization and economic exclusion, and others join quite simply just for personal profit. Should negotiations occur, al-Shabaab would be in a powerful position. However, waiting to begin negotiations may actually give the group the ability to further improve its position. To conclude, with limited prospects for a military victory and little motivation to enter negotiations, the conflict with al-Shabaab has reached a stalemate. And unfortunately, if one side holds a strategic advantage in that stalemate, it may be al-Shabaab. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bacon. Uh, Mr. Yarnell. Thank you, Chairman Flake. Ranking Member Booker, uh, Senator Merkley, members of the subcommittee, um, it's an honor to be here and, and I uh, ask that my full statement be submitted for the record. In 2017, funds authorized by you, members of Congress, 
help stave off a major famine in Somalia. But the crisis is far from over. Severe drought and insecurity continue, and we now face the very real threat, Senator Flake, as you said, of backsliding. In my testimony, I will first explain the positive impact of last year's response. I will then highlight three urgent issues. The ongoing humanitarian needs, the lack of safety and security for displaced Somalis, and the uncertainty facing Somali refugees in Kenya. I will also address longer-term development objectives and the critical role of sustained U.S. leadership. At this time last year, the deadly combination of drought and violent conflict brought Somalia to the edge of catastrophe, one that could have rivaled the 2011 famine that killed 260,000 people. I was in Somalia during the height of the crisis last year, as hundreds of thousands were fleeing their homes in search of food and water. In one town, where people had been streaming in from the surrounding rural areas, I met Somalis who had lost everything. One woman, Halima, had arrived with her seven children. The drought had killed most of her animals and Al-Shabaab had taken the rest. Now she was simply desperate for food to feed her children. Her story was all too common and the prognosis looked bleak. Fortunately, when USAID's Famine Early Warning Systems Network sounded the alarm, the United States and other donors responded with significant resources. According to UNICEF, nearly one million Somalis accessed emergency nutrition services. Agencies like the World Food Program increased the implementation of cash assistance, allowing people to buy the food items they needed while also helping to stabilize the markets. However, though a worst case scenario was indeed avoided, the drought persists and insecurity continues. There are currently around 2.1 million Somalis displaced within their own country. And if the next long rains fail, this could result in a poor harvest for the fifth consecutive season. At present, more than half the people in need in Somalia are children. We know the targeted, well-resourced feeding programs can work. We cannot allow thousands of children to die simply because of a lack of funding. Based on the current needs, the US government and other donors should at least match the humanitarian funding that was provided last year. As well as treating hunger and malnutrition, more, must, more assistance is also needed to protect the rights and safety of displaced Somalis. Tragically, rape and sexual assault is pervasive, including at the hands of security forces. As well, uncertain land tenure means that people living in displacement camps face the constant threat of forcible evictions, especially those from weaker clans and minority ethnic groups. Across the border in Kenya, the government has suspended refugee registration for arrivals from Somalia and periodically threatens to close the Dadaab refugee camp, which houses more than 230,000 Somali refugees. The decision by the Trump administration to effectively scuttle the option of resettlement to the United States has dealt another blow. This is deeply disturbing. Resettlement is an essential form of protection for refugees who face particular threats and vulnerabilities. And it also offers hope for the future. For many, this hope is now gone. Ultimately, emergency response efforts for Somalia can only go so far, especially in the face of worsening climate trends. A key component for a longer-term strategy for Somalia is dual-pronged, support resilience programs that aim to help people bounce back from climate shocks 
while also adapting assistance for urban displaced who have lost their livelihoods and are unlikely to return to their home areas. Fortunately, despite the challenges, the United States does have, I believe, a willing partner in the Somali government. But to ensure that, Somali, that, ensure that engagement with Somalia is as effective as possible, indeed the post of US ambassador to Somalia must be filled without delay. Last year, in the face of crisis, you here in Congress passed the supplemental appropriations bill that saved lives and prevented a disaster. Now that same leadership is needed to sustain those gains and to support Somalis as they build a better future. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Dr. Hogendorn. Uh, thank you, Senators Flake, Booker, and Merkley for inviting Crisis Group to testify today. Uh, we last testified on Somalia in 2013, and sadly, there has been too little progress uh, so far. Today, in my testimony, I would like to stress three points um, for your consideration. First, there is no military solution to the conflict in Somalia. U.S. drone strikes and special forces operations cannot defeat al-Shabaab, and 22,000 African Union forces cannot control or pacify an area the size of New Mexico. That is because al-Shabaab is a resilient foe. It has shifted from conventional to asymmetric warfare. It is now engaging in ambushes, suicide bombings, and assassinations to continue to undermine attempts to rebuild the state in the country. It also exploits clan grievances and popular disgust with the government's corruption, nepotism, and impunity of their officials to exert control over large amounts of the rural population in South and Central Somalia. To defeat al-Shabaab, we need two things. We need effective local security partners. And while there have been some improvements, it has not been enough. The Somali National Army in particular is poorly coordinated, is mistrusted by a number of important clans, and there is massive corruption that undermines morale and the ability to operate. In fact, on 14 December, the United States suspended its support to most of Somalia's national army because of corruption concerns. Small and specialized units such as the NAB are not enough to take on al-Shabaab. Secondly, we need to generate Somali political will for security sector reform. Unfortunately, what we have right now is we have perverse incentive pervading in Mogadishu. Because Amazon is protecting the government from al-Shabaab, many politicians prefer the status quo, which is a continuation of massive corruption and unwillingness to address the political dysfunctions that are driving people to support al-Shabaab or to expend the political capital that would be necessary for significant security sector reform. We need to change those incentives and as part of that, what has been discussed is an exit strategy for Amazon. The idea being is that we slowly hand security responsibilities over to our Somali partners. In an effort to do that, the UN Security Council also passed Resolution 2372 late last year in an effort to set up a timeline for this passing of responsibility from Amazon to the Somalis, and we think that that should be pursued. A second issue that I would like to raise, it's been raised by some of my colleagues, is poor governance and corruption. 
Unfortunately, Somalia is still governed by a 2012 provisional constitution, which vaguely divide, defines the division of responsibilities and authorities, both at the executive and between federal member states. This is the cause of much dysfunction and chronic infighting between the president, the prime minister, and parliament, as Abdi Rashid has referred to, and it has also led to significant tensions between Mogadishu and regional capitals as to how to pursue the effort against al-Shabaab. Another disturbing aspect is a decision by the Somali federal government to pursue what in Somalia is called hard government. Uh, the uh, government has actually taken some fairly authoritarian steps, particularly against opposition leaders, most notably in a December raid against an opposition leader in which five of his bodyguards were killed. This is costing the government significant popular support. In addition, abrasive rhetoric by politicians in Mogadishu has exacerbated tensions between certain uh, federal states. It has also exacerbated tensions between the self-declared independent Somaliland and the federal member state of Puntland. And last but not least, Somalia still has not tackled the massive problem of corruption. It should not be a surprise to anyone here that Somalia is unfortunately ranked the most corrupt country in the world according to Transparency International. Last but not least, Abdi Rashid mentioned this as well, but I think it's important to stress, there are significant external destabilizing influences, particularly at the moment when it comes to the rivalry between Gulf state actors in Somalia. This is especially true for the rivalry between the United Arab Emirates and Qatar, in which the Qataris have for a long time supported the president and the Emiratis in turn are supporting federal member states. This is undermining state building efforts and raising tensions significantly between member states and the federal government and between Somaliland and the Somali federal government as well. To end, I have three recommendations for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, at this point. I agree that we need, to, we need to nominate and approve a new U.S. ambassador who can go to Mogadishu when we open our embassy in, in August. In addition, I think that the State Department should be instructed to coordinate activities between the Near East Bureau and the Africa Bureau to try to mitigate the destabilizing impact of this Gulf state rivalry that I've mentioned. Secondly, I think it would be important for Congress to appropriate or shift money from the military effort to governance reform programs and also to help combat corruption in Somalia. And last but not least, I think it would be important to use U.S. influence and leverage to try to force, or not try to force, but to encourage the Somali federal government and federal member states to resolve the differences over the division of power and responsibilities between the federal government and federal member states and to institutionalize those, uh, those, those structures as well. And I thank you for your attention and look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Hogan, or Dr. Hogan Arn. Um, Mr. Hashi, you mentioned that uh, you know can't get to Mars on dollar store items. Uh, talking about the uh, the finances uh, that the government has available to it, um, those are constricted uh, largely because uh, unable to reconcile with the international finance institutions, 
in terms of, of lending or future lending. How is that going? Is there any progress that's being made in that regard? I think the only uh, area that the government can get a, a passing grade is, is interactions with the international financial institutions. The IMF actually set uh, certain milestones for the government to increase its uh, local revenue generation, and it has been doing enough uh, and actually winning uh, the, the respect of the, of, of the IMF and the World Bank. But the government only controls Mogadishu. The rest of Somalia is controlled by other regional states who control ports and airports. And they use whatever resources they get to actually run their states, the regional states within Somalia. Uh, so, uh, and it's taxing the citizens of Mogadishu who are resisting actually you know, extra taxation. But overall, the government has to take control of the entire country and you know, have unified uh, you know, t taxation system. And the other thing is Somalia has moved from a unitary state to a federal system, uh, but there is no enough, uh, the laws are not set up to ensure uh, the, you know, you know, fiscal, you know, we have fiscal federalism where the government can collect taxation throughout the country and you know, dis distribute and share and the like. So uh, it's, it's just able to collect about $11 billion a month in Mogadishu airport and port. But that's not enough uh, to, to provide services. Whatever money it gets, it just goes to salaries, to, to, to the police. And you mentioned that 99% of uh, revenue goes straight to salaries for civil servants. If those salaries aren't paid, what happens? Well... It just make life easier for Al-Shabaab to recruit and, and whatnot? Yes, you know, not only that, but, you know... <coughs> Just paying about 50 employees for a particular ministry in Mogadishu will not make the Somali government look like a government. Right. It, it needs to provide services. And Somali population is about 12 million. 5.4 million of them, according to the United Nations, need help. 70% uh, of them are, are youth under 30. They don't have employment. So the government needs more than 270 million to look like a government. Thank you. Dr. Bacon, uh, in my office you talked about uh, visiting Somalia years ago and then just uh, recently. Uh, can you talk about some of the, uh, what are the differences? What, what did you see? You, you talked about going in the, some of the rural areas and uh, as has been mentioned by a few of you, Al-Shabaab is actually delivering services, uh, you know, letting out justice, um, establishing some semblance of order. How much of a problem is that for a government to retake those areas or to compete with, with that? I think it really has most clearly emerged how central the justice piece is to um, the way forward in Somalia. We do talk a lot about the security sector and the army and the police, and those are all are important. But one of the things that al-Shabaab has really been able to distinguish itself through is its courts. And people are using its courts who don't necessarily even support the organization or its <coughs> aims. Its courts are seen as fairly efficient, relatively uncorrupt, and relatively fair. And so that is one of the ways that it's able to supplant the, the still fragile authority of the Somali federal government. And it seems to me that that has to be a really key component moving forward because justice in that kind of insecure situation is really central to security. And rather than justice following security, it seems like justice needs to be part of the security 
security picture. And that, I think, is really one of the things that's changed over time. And that's one of the things that brought the rise of the Islamic courts and then al-Shabaab was this really central piece of justice. Um, so in, in my view, that's a critical piece of what al-Shabaab has been able to provide, much more so than its actual ideology. Thank you. Mr. Yarnell, you mentioned the U.S. admitted and resettled about 10,000 refugees in 2016 compared with only 177 over the course of the past five months. Um, tell us more about the U.S. role and, and uh, our admission of refugees or what, what kind of impact that has um, on some of our, our allies and, and uh, neighbors uh, uh, in terms of their own ability or willingness to accept refugees. Sure, that's a, that's a very important question. Um, as I mentioned, resettlement exists as an option for refugees who are most vulnerable, who may never be able to return home because of particular threats, and who also face threats in their place of refuge, for instance, in Kenya. Um, so UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, identifies those who particularly need resettlement as an option, and then they move through the, um, the screening and all the security and health checks before they're resettled. Um, so for those who were who had been identified and who faced those particular threats, uh, because of the new measures in place, the option to be resettled has essentially been closed uh, because the numbers have dropped so dramatically. And at the same time, um, because it's moving so slowly, the UN has stopped even identifying new people for resettlement to the US. At the same, I think more, more generally, it reverberates through the camp. People who thought that resettlement may be an option and see that that is no longer there, um, I'm hearing from people in, who work in Dadaab that um, more people are returning to Somalia prematurely because they feel like they have no other option. And at the same time, when we're asking Kenya to do more, Ethiopia to do more, other countries to host hundreds of thousands of refugees, uh, it's difficult for us to ask them to hold up that commitment when we're closing the doors on refugees ourselves. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Hogendorn, what impact of neighboring countries and uh, not so neighboring countries like China had um, on the situation, political situation and stability in uh, Somalia. Obviously, the African Union, uh, you know, with Amazon is supporting troops. Uh, what about uh, uh, others outside of the area, particularly China? Well, I, as excuse me, as I've uh, as I've uh, testified. The, the real problem is it's a coordination problem. You have lots and lots of different actors who are trying to exert influence in Somalia. They may all want to uh, stabilize the country, but I think that there are significant disagreements about how to stabilize the country and to some degree who should be leading that stabilization process. Uh, China has been a, a significant player in that it is starting to support uh, the security services. Uh, obviously, the African Union has been an incredibly important uh, actor in, in providing Amazon, which has uh, cost lots of troop-contributing countries many, many hundreds of lives, uh, and certainly has cost the international community hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Uh, I still contest that right now the biggest problem really is, is that the Horn, in, the Horn of Africa in general, and Somalia in particular, has become um, a proxy battleground for uh, influence in, uh, for, for a number of Middle Eastern countries, particularly the United Arab Emirates and, um, and Qatar, but others as well. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of that influence is being exerted through money. 
uh, and through support that is very difficult to observe, uh, but that is really fraying at uh, the delicate, fragile consensus that exists both in Mogadishu and also between Mogadishu and these federal member states. Thank you. Senator Booker. I'm going to defer to Senator Merkley. I'll thank you very much, Mr. Chair, and thank you, Mr. Ranking Member, for the opportunity to ask a few questions. And I, I wanted to start just by thanking you, Mr. Yarnell, for the work of Refugees International and for the humanitarian community working to address such a horrific uh, plight and challenge, uh, complicated both by uh, food production and the conflict of, of, of war. I'm going to take my time, however, to address some of the issues regarding Al-Shabaab. And uh, uh, Mr. Hashi, uh, you refer to, quote, petrodollars should be used to avert starvation, not to put this fledgling country in the middle of a geopolitical power play. And you refer to the dispute between United Arab Emirates Emirate and Qatar. Uh, so, and Dr. Hagedorn has referred to these, this proxy challenge as well. Exactly how are they weighing in and complicating the conflict? Thank you. I think I, I'm really exaggerating if I say uh, that the threat of emanating from the, the Gulf countries is as bad as the threat of al-Shabaab because the money they are pouring into the system and the rivalries they are supporting could actually unravel the entire federal government institutions yeah, as we speak today. Because even today, about 100 or so MPs, they submitted a motion against the speaker, the number two in the country. There's another you know, a rival uh, motion against the prime minister and his cabinet. Uh, Somaliland and Somalia, Somaliland is up in the north, it wants to secede, but there has been ongoing negotiation between Somalia and Somaliland. Because of the UAE, or companies in the, or company in the UAE, Dubai World, taking over, you know, in Berbera port in the north in Somaliland, the Somali parliament said two days ago that company is persona non grata in Somalia, they just are barred from Somalia. As a result, the Somali lead, Somaliland leadership now are in Dubai or Abu Dhabi. So the entire country actually is bubbling. And if there is actually a big, big bang in the next few weeks, I won't be surprised. Solely because of the, you know, the energy and the effort and the meddling of those countries. While Somalis were you know, experiencing famine in 2012 and even 2016, you know, our Arab brothers up, you know, up there they were not helping us much. So the least they can do is to just stay away from our country. So at least we can just stitch this, this country together. So neither of these two countries are funding al-Shabaab, but they're funding different groups of politicians and different movements that are, are destabilizing the effort to have a coherent political process. Yes, they are just supporting Somali political parties at the, at the center and the region, and that can stabilize the entire system. One of the issues that has, is often raised and has been raised here is in regard to corruption. You served in the government. You were there firsthand. Uh, we know how difficult it is to establish any nation going forward uh, if there isn't a uh, system and a, a, an ethic uh, that is, is about the success of the country and not about 
individuals taking payments and being steered in different directions. It appears like so far the efforts to take this on have been ineffective. What more can be done? I think it requires political leadership. The people at the top uh, to have zero tolerance for, for, for corruption. But also uh, the reason corruption is not a big problem in many parts of the world is because you have systems in place. And when there's no effective institutions at the judiciary, as somebody just said earlier, and uh, you know, just you know, human beings when they see you know cash, usually you know some, 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 something bad happens. So system actually can uh, can deal with that, and unfortunately the system is very weak. Okay, uh, thank you, and and Dr. Bacon, uh, it's been noted that uh, MSOM and Somali forces have driven al-Shabaab from 80% of the territory once controlled. Meanwhile, we have testimony from Mr. Hashi that the capital has never been more insecure. And uh, Amazon, the plan is to start reducing their forces. Is this uh, phased reduction uh, premature or dangerous? Uh, is the right force, is the is force right size now or does it actually be, need to be larger uh, so forth? I think one of the tricks about assessing the situation is measures like the amount of territory al-Shabaab controls can be misleading when you look at it compared to its peak. I mean, yes, the group controls significant strongholds in the rural area, and it also exerts a pretty pervasive influence other, other, over other parts of the country, including Mogadishu. And it does so, as I mentioned through the course, it does so through fairly effective taxation, something the government has struggled to do. It has a much more pervasive influence throughout Somalia than its territorial holdings would suggest. And that is to say that, yes, there is the issue of as long as Amazon stays, there is a, a moral hazard that things that the Somali government and the Somali forces need to do aren't done because Amazon is doing them. Having said that, a premature Amazon withdrawal, in my view, could lead to the collapse of the Somali federal government, but would certainly lead to expansive gains by al-Shabaab. The group is still sufficiently strong that it could, could conquer much more territory and expand its influence significantly if Amazon withdraws prematurely. You have, you have mentioned that the courts they provide are meet with some significant uh, acceptance or even appreciation. And just as you were talking, I could have taken your testimony and put it on top of the Taliban at one yes. point in Af Afghanistan. Still, yes. And this also accentuates the need for the government to be able to be um, an even better system. But the, but the corruption I just mentioned undermines faith in the public institutions. How do we overcome this? I, I've been struck by those parallels myself, that there are uh, between the Taliban and al-Shabaab. There's no Pakistan, though, in the case of al-Shabaab, so you don't have the kind of external problem to the same degree, although you clearly have other ones. I think one of the, the things that al-Shabaab is able to accomplish is its courts are considered fairly credible and legitimate, and it also has the coercive power that people are, won't reject its rulings. They fear it enough that it will punish anyone who doesn't adhere to its rulings. So it's got a combination of credibility and coercion mm -hmm. that is pretty effective in delivering the services that it does, and that are, is difficult to some degree for a government to do, uh, to exert that kind of coercion in the same way. But ultimately, you're right. There's something of a competition between al-Shabaab and the government in some of these realms like justice, and the government has to win that competition in order to really become a sustainable, credible government. 
Thank you all very much for your, your, your testimony and, and bringing your expertise to bear on this challenge. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Booker. So um, again, I'm grateful, as Senator Merkley said, that for you all being here. And so I, I'm just trying to get this from a larger perspective. And I think that um, Dr. Bacon, uh, your name is very intimidating to me as a vegan, um, uh, but uh, um, I'll go forward anyway. Um, the, 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 that competition between the things that Al-Shabaab is providing, the way, if I could synthesize, and you guys can tell me this is too simplistic, but I'm really looking for a governing strategy for this, for this, this committee about the things that we need to be putting influence on, and I appreciate some of you got very, uh, Dr. Hogan, you were sort of like very specific at the end of your testimony. This is what you guys should do, and you had three very good points. But let me just say, if, tell me if I'm getting this right. Um, the, one of the most important things uh, I think Mr. Hashi was saying is that we're not going to win what we, or I shouldn't say win as if uh, direct competition, but we're not going to succeed unless we have a strong functioning government in, uh, in, in the country. And, and it seems to me that if I can, I'm just sitting here taking my notes that there's really five things that are undermining the success of the government. Uh, the first one is just the ability to provide security for a nation, fundamentally important. Uh, the second thing is these external threats. I would even call them environmental threats. We have a serious problem with global warming uh, that is causing just drought after drought, and we're about to have what seems to be another serious drought that's going to add to the humanitarian crisis, undermining the government's legitimacy. The next thing, Mr. Hashi, you just said very plainly is, a government of that size just doesn't have the kind of resources it needs to provide for its residents, uh, um, which drives another one of the five things, I would say, which is just the outright corruption. Um, uh, and then you add to that the geopolitical issues, or you have the competitions between uh, Qatar and, and the UAE. Those two seem to be the five things, and you, and you have an al-Shabaab that's capitalizing uh, on a lot of these things by, as you said, uh, uh, Dr. Bacon, you know, providing less corruption, um, more fair, providing resources, um, uh, <coughs> uh, providing security. And, and, and so the, the pressure points that I would be looking for strategies from this committee would be where, what can we do to help with those things? Because again, I have some serious concerns about our military strategies, even though our increase in drone strikes obviously has had collateral benefits of adding to security, but it's not, it's not going to win this. This is not going to be won by, uh, by military, nor would I really want to see if there's things we're not doing to achieve these ends, putting more American lives in jeopardy and, frankly, uh, uh, putting more, um, uh, uh, doing things that often, I think, in the long run, add to more security concerns uh, 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 when you fly drones uh, and, 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 and have collateral civilian damage. Now, pair that with, again, the fact that um, uh, Amazon is, is going to be is, is saying they're going to be pulling out. So can I just deal with these things real quick, uh, if I can understand? Number one, the humanitarian crisis, um, um, Mr. Yarnell, that that's serious and and pending. And and you're telling me that the things that we should be thinking about, if I hear you clearly, is one is humanitarian aid is making a difference, and two, America's moral authority of shutting down our borders to Somali refugees, that's something, these are two things that this Senate committee and the United States Senate could be dealing with, making sure we're putting resources in to deal with a God, uh, uh, a agonizing humanitarian crisis, and number two is, hey, step up on this issue of refugees, stop letting the Canadians out-American us. As a dual Canadian-American, I appreciate that reference. Yes. Um, 
No, you're exactly right. I mean, it, it, providing robust humanitarian assistance, to use a phrase that, that others have used, is that uh, it's not just the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. Um, it, the assistance provided by Congress saved lives at the same time, as others have mentioned, when the U.S. is putting tremendous resources into uh, supporting the Somali government and trying to eradicate corruption, help it expand its governance, defeat al-Shabaab. If the country experiences widespread famine, that just, you know, drops the bottom out of those efforts. So I think that you achieve multiple objectives by responding with a robust humanitarian... Anything else I'm missing that if you want to advise us to deal with this humanitarian crisis and the coming drought that I think we're going to see again, anything else that we should be thinking about before Jeff and I go, Senator Flake and I go on to the next uh, thing of the day? I just can't emphasize enough the, the, the positive impact the funding played last year. I know that, that there's often funding fatigue, uh, but... It's not the kind of thing where you can just provide assistance now and then the next year will be fine. The successive rains have been eroding uh, the capacity of Somalis to, to respond to drought. And so it's going to take multiple successful rains before people can get back to their previous pre-crisis levels. So to think that just because last year the funding was strong, they were out of the woods, I think is, is short-sighted. So just keep that, keep that message strong. Anybody else want to add something to the humanitarian issue? before? If I, that's my takeaways right now is... Okay, fine. Then, then let the, these two, I would maybe say the same solutions. The rivalry, the the the, the rivalries in the region, the, this this proxy war that seems to be playing out in, in details, as well as the corruption. To me, we're not going to achieve those. We're not going to deal with those things, but for great diplomacy coming from the United States of America. That's that's got to be the way you deal with this: is having diplomatic strategy that is focused on diminishing the rivalries going on uh, between. You know, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Qatar, all of this playing out in that region is really going to take a, a diplomatic effort um, beyond the staff capacities of Senator Flake and myself, correct? Yes, okay. And, and then the same thing with corruption. Um, um, I think that that's probably two things. Uh, one would be, again, having an ambassador uh, there in place to have straight talk, carrot stick talk with, with uh, a political leadership in that country. And I think uh, Mr. Hashi's pointing out, there's also a resource problem that in some ways is fueling the corruption. What, what, am I correct in assuming that, 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 that there's a need for American, the American role that would most be uh, desirable would be focusing on uh, diplomacy and, and, and resources to do help, help with institution buildings that can insulate from corruption. Mr. Hashi. Uh, thank you. Yes, uh, you know, if, if all the problems that you have mentioned and others listed, if they are not dealt with, and some of them rather urgently, Al-Shabaab will be the net you know, beneficiary of this. Basically, this government is just so weak. It just, if, if, it, it just cannot withstand all those different pressures coming in. And I think one of the one thing the Somalis can do, Somalis, what they can do is to just get the politics right. If they just actually understand, you know, this contested, you know, global system where, you know, the attention of the U.S. is required in other many, many different places or, you know, the attention of others or the U.N. or whatever, they need to take advantage of the opportunities they have or the attention they have, like the one that you are giving to Somalia today. And just you know, do the things they can do. They they can actually fix you know issues of of, of corruption and others. And somebody was talking about SNA, the Somali National Army. I think uh, you know, uh, yes, maybe there's corruption of the leadership and 
but the, you know, the rank and file, they have just paid so much, you know, so much, and so many of them have died in the past six, seven, eight years, maybe, maybe more than 10,000 people died fighting with Al-Shabaab. And there are units that the U.S. supports that has been effective, you know, well effective. So, you know, with mentoring and, you know, you know hands-on help with, with, with certain institutions, uh, Somalis can do their part and the international partners can also help. So, uh, Somalis need to get the politics right, stop unnecessary squabbling. Uh, the U.S. and others can actually tell, you know, the, the external actors their interferences is enhancing and helping al-Shabaab. That's actually super urgent. Otherwise, the system, the Somali government system, will just you know, weaken and weaken, and that just makes al-Shabaab the winner. And, and also extra help to make, you know, we don't have to do the same thing again and again for 20, 30 years, and then expect things to improve. It won't improve whatever we are doing together as Somalis and our international partners. So, so just, to, just to wrap that up then, the, clearly, security is needed. It's not, the, the, there's a threat of Unisom ramps down too quickly. Um, but what we really need to be doing, and some of the aid that we're providing in terms of military assistance, is helping the, the Somali National Army. But, but as we've said, and again, I think Jeff said, Senator Flake said this well, it does really remind me of the challenges in Afghanistan in the sense that if, you can't, if a government can't provide security, <clears throat> it undermines the, the legitimacy of that government. And it's effectiveness. Look, I, I want to wrap up. The, if Jeff will, uh, Senator Flake will allow me one last area, just just some insight for me, because I think that the uh, former Secretary of State uh, <coughs> was focusing on uh, just the influence of China in the region, and and some worries I have about creating situations where there's uh, a, a greater African debt in general. But is is that a concern? If I look at a, a strategy for Somalia. Is is the, the Chinese are playing a constructive role to the ends that I outline, or is it is, is that something that you would say, hey, Corey, uh, uh, red light here. There's a you should you should be concerned and focused on uh, a pernicious influence when it comes to the Chinese uh, in Somalia. Anybody can take that. I would just quickly say China is not in Somalia yet. They happen to be in Djibouti and in the neighborhood. But if things settle uh, down, I'm sure they will be close to us. So I just want to say, uh, to, to, uh, in conclusion, way over my time, but um, I, I just have some concerns that we do not have a, 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 a strategy coming from the, the State Department administration. Um, and, and that lack of strategy and doubling down on doing the same things, just trying to do the, more of the same things, is not, not necessarily going to be producing the results uh, that we need. Clearly, I think that from this, <coughs> Senator Flake and my teams are starting to see a strategy for um, for the Senate uh, that we can advocate with our ally, with our with our colleagues. But I, I just it's a serious alarm for me. And Senator Flake has heard me on this rant before that we don't have State Department officials here. Uh, we're not able to to ask them if they have a strategy. I don't know if they do. They don't have a diplomatic uh, uh, reach there. I, it raises serious alarms that America could be more precise in, in achieving the ends for the great people of Somalia. And, and I just want to ring that bell one more time, that this is very, very troublesome to me, that we have an area of the world that is in serious crisis, from humanitarian crisis, environmental crisis, and more immediate for the United States of America, serious uh, security concerns for our country as, as well as theirs. And I'm hoping that we'll see with the new Secretary of State, perhaps, um, uh, 
uh, concern for, for Africa, I mean, from the Congo to Somalia to South Sudan, just not having the diplomatic resources necessary uh, to help advance the cause of our country as well as the countries I've mentioned. Uh, with that, uh, Senator Flake, I'm through. Well, well, thank you. And picking up on what Senator Booker said and our, our <coughs> commitment and the State Department's commitment, uh, Dr. Bacon, you spent a good deal of time at State. Uh, are there career foreign service officers who are capable, uh, who are willing to serve uh, as ambassador to, to uh, Somalia? I have no doubt that there are both of those things. There are people who are willing and capable, and I couldn't agree more that having strong diplomatic presence at this particular juncture is absolutely essential. It's essential particularly because of the external meddling. There, it's essential because you have this conflict between the federal member states and the federal government. U.S. leadership in diplomacy is absolutely essential to, to this process. Is it concerning to you, and does it send, uh, uh, Dr. Hogan or ask you this, is it concerning to you and does it send a, a signal we don't want to send to our allies and, and uh, partners in this that we haven't uh, one year into this, this administration or beyond a year named an assistant secretary for Africa or filled envoy positions or uh, ambassadorships? Well, I certainly think it, it sends a strong signal as to how important Africa is considered uh, by the administration, and, and certainly I hope that is rectified very quickly. Uh, just to add what, what Dr. to what Dr. Bacon was saying, I do also think it's important uh, to note that, um, you know, while we are all very, very concerned about uh, protecting U.S. diplomats and, and um, when they're in, in field, there is a huge problem when it comes to working in Somalia with these uh, security restrictions that diplomats face. Currently, most U.S. officials, particularly from the State Department and USAID, are confined to the airport. They can, in fact, not even present their credentials to the president because they cannot travel to the presidency. Mark travels throughout Somalia. I've traveled throughout Somalia. Abdi Rashid lives in Mogadishu. Uh, I imagine Dr. Bacon has traveled extensively through Somalia. We are or at least the State Department is ceding this entire field to the DOD and the intelligence community, which is one reason why I think the U.S. government is focusing most of its efforts on those sectors of the U.S. foreign policy establishment. And, and I think that's a, that's a real question that the Senate needs to struggle with in terms of how do we develop a more sophisticated diplomatic and political strategy to help the Somalis rebuild their state. Last but not least, because of this, what is also happening is that most of the support that is going to the Somali federal government stays in Mogadishu, which is one of the reasons why we're seeing these struggles in trying to expand state administration and services in the federal member states' capitals, in those areas where they really are at the front line of the battle to fight al-Shabaab and its influence in the rural areas. Thank you. Thank you, and I know we both have to get to some other hearings, but uh, one other question. It, we referenced Afghanistan here. One thing that we have found in Afghanistan over the years is what was mentioned by, by somebody here, that there is incentive uh, that, uh, that the, those in, in, in government in Somalia uh, uh, take advantage of the fact that Amisom is there. Um, it allows continuance of the status quo is not bad for some. Um, 
with that in mind, the 2020 date in terms of uh, Amazon's departure, uh, how realistic is that? Is that needed simply because we have to move on and the security services have to take it upon themselves? Or what is your assessment of that 2020 date, uh, Dr. Hashi? Yeah. I think the 2020 date was not meant to be just a one-time pull-out of Amazon in Somalia. It's supposed to be a gradual process where uh, every year one or 2,000 lifts. Personally, we are of the view it's not a bad idea because then the Somali SNA can get the attention and the support it requires. But it seems that Amazon uh, wants to stay on uh, because they understand the insecurity that prevails throughout Somalia. But I would just put, uh, say for the record, Amazon just paid dearly and they really uh, helped you know, uh, liberate, uh, securing the urban centers and also giving the space to Somali politicians. It's up to the Somalis to, you know, st step up to the plate and, 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 you know, and build those security institutions in Somalia. All right. Dr. Bacon, do you have any thoughts on that? I agree that it creates a perverse incentive structure and that there is merit to thinking about how to reduce that. Having said that, my perception is that the withdrawal has mostly been driven by concerns about who's going to fund this force. It's not been driven by the actual conditions on the ground, the capability of the Somali National Army, or the reduction of, th of the threat from al-Shabaab. So given that it's, it's more of a financial consideration than a security one, I have concerns with the 2020 date. It seems premature. Yeah. All right. Any thoughts uh, from the refugee angle? And, uh, Absolutely. Um, I mean, one of, one of the key lessons or, or um, uh, takeaways from the 2011 famine compared to what's happening now is that in 2011 the government controlled very limited territory and many of the people who died during the famine it's because they were walking uh, for hundreds of miles to to get across into Ethiopia and, and Kenya whereas now because the government with Amazon support controls uh, more cities in the country Somalis travel less distance to get assistance where aid workers uh, have access so if you have a premature withdrawal of Amazon, if you have al-Shabaab regaining territory, fewer areas of access for uh, aid workers to, uh, to reach, I think the potential for uh, another outflow of Somalis into neighboring countries is real. Yeah. Doctor? Well, I, I do not want to dismiss the threat that is al-Shabaab. Yet at the same time, al-Shabaab is probably, if you talk to most experts, somewhere in the neighborhood of five to 10,000 troops in total. So it's not a question of is al-Shabaab that strong, it's a question of why is the government so weak? And I think again that has to do with the politics of it and the dysfunctions that the political infighting are creating both within the government as a whole and within the SNA as, as uh, specifically. There are very poor parts of Somalia where they get the politics right where there is very little al-Shabaab presence, where they get relatively little assistance from the United States government or others. So again, I, you know, I, I, I'm not saying we should cut support for, um, for Somali government or, or certainly not for refugee programs, but I think we do need to send a message to Somali politicians that, as Abdi Rashid says, they need to step up to the plate, and if they do not, there are going to be consequences. Well, thank you all for your attending today and providing us with uh, 
benefits of your expertise, all of you. Uh, this has been helpful to us, and, uh, and I'm sure other members of the committee will read the testimony as well. Uh, the uh, record will remain open until the close of business tomorrow. Ask the witnesses to respond as promptly as possible, and your responses will remain part of the record. Uh, with the thanks of the subcommittee, this hearing is now adjourned.